Good evening and welcome to Editing Aloud. And I have with me a panel of South Africa's uh, most well-informed and most chatty journalists um, to take you through the issues of South Africa. And this week, particularly some international issues which have um, really focused our attention. But starting with South Africa, Lucanio, the Development Bank of South Africa coming to the rescue of South African Airways. A lot of people are very uncomfortable about this one. What could possibly justify it, other than that Treasury had nowhere else to turn, which is yeah. not really a good enough reason? Yeah, no, exactly. I mean, as you mentioned, I mean, none of the private banks would fund it. I mean, Treasury Finance Minister has said numerous times that, that, that this, this, this company is not viable. And yet here you are, you have a, a state-owned bank that's going to give it another three and a half billion. Now that's, <laughs> and that's guaranteed, obviously, by the state, by the, by the Treasury. So we don't, it's probably a bit clear. Like, I'm not sure what the, what, the, what the implications that are in terms of like, the ratings and in terms of like, the fiscal outlook. Because you know, we've been talking about how we need to show progress in the next month that we'll actually be doing running in a fiscal position. And, that, and, and a big part of that is controlling the spending on state-owned enterprises. And now we're just going to throw another three and a half billion into SAA that the minister has said should be closed down. So, Indeed, so, so, I was, I was actually the with some, some bankers the other day yeah. who said we always bring, we put up our share of the money and then the government never it's delivers on their share. Yeah. So this is a way of the government delivering, but people are rushing around trying to find the development bank's mandate um, document because... Warren, I mean, what chance that the DBSA's mandate even allows for such a loan? Well, not directly involved in this one, but the way I understand it is that they don't have a mandate to, uh, to undertake an investment in an airline. Theirs is uh, a mandate to invest in infrastructure and fund infrastructure. So if you think about SAA, they lease planes and operate uh, a service that uh, has been heavily subsidized over the last 20 years for the benefit of really middle-income South African citizens. It's not by any way uh, enhancing the travel of the poor or making uh, access to uh, travel for the poor any better. So I think it's a, f a fascinating story um, and also given my understanding that the, the deal with the business rescue practitioners was that uh, SA, um, the government as the shareholder and the financiers were going to put in place four billion rand of post, what they call post-commencement post funding. Uh, and clearly, Treasury was going to put up half of that. So uh, there's a whole political uh, shift, I think, that's, that's taken place here, where Tito might have just absolutely refused providing that funding, their half of the funding. How I come it comes that there to was the a bit of a technical bank? issue with, with Treasury mm -hmm. providing that funding. But, but Genevieve, I'm, I'm just wondering, what are the politics of this? Because we've come from SAA basically goes under, Business Rescue comes in as an alternative to immediate liquidation. Now, all of a sudden, we're rescuing the thing and trying to keep it flying, possibly at the cost of many billions. I mean, what, what has gone on in the ANC and in government such that this thing seems almost to have shifted? Well, if you look at the timeline of, of what happened in the last two weeks, we had a head before the ANC-NEC meeting about two weeks ago and the Lechotla. Um, we obviously had, as we said, Tito Mbaweni saying we should sell it and this back and forth business practice. But when we came out of the Lechotla, there was all of a sudden a very strong resolution that it was decided that, that the ANC wants SAA to stay as a state entity 
and that the executive would take decisions to help with operational issues, which is a sort of in line with a resolution that the president had um, read out during his closing remarks to the Lechotla. He said no political interference in SOEs except when there's a failure of company or issues of corruption. So I guess they can say, well, executive has to step in. So now we know the ANC wants to save it. It's, it's a decision taken where that came from, which faction it was a resolution taken at this meeting. And then a week later, we have this development, development bank bailout. What I don't understand about this, and Sarah Ramaphosa likes to talk about transparency and what's happening. So surely someone should come and say, how was this decision taken? Who took it? Who came to the de development bank and said, help us? Because if it's someone in government, surely they know the mandate of the bank. Surely they need to be upfront about how this happened and why it happened. I saw a whole debate on Twitter. People were like, oh, but the Devel development bank gave money to ESCOM a few years ago. But ESCOM is a completely different entity to SAA. So, there are a lot of governance issues. I mean, if you think about who the chair of the Devel development bank is, <laughs> you know, Indeed. I mean, that's the elephant in the room in a way. And recently appointed, <laughs> right? Recently appointed, appointed chair of the development bank. So, so then, then, then it sort of brings the question about governance, about transparency, about, you know, like what kind of decisions do these banks make? Do they make like commercial decisions or the other? In what sense is yeah. it an independent and entity? And, and you didn't actually tell us, so I shall <laughs> tell anyone who doesn't know that Enoch Godongwana, the, the head of the ANC's, I think, Economic so, Transformation, Transformation Committee, mm -hmm. has recently appointed, been appointed as chair of the Development Bank of Southern Africa. Uh, look, Hanyo, um, is the Development Bank supposed to be an independent entity in, with its own governance structure? I know it issues its own bonds. Mm. Um, so are there issues here, as you say, about who's I mean, calling the shots? I mean, like any organizations, like in the, you know, you've got a board, you've got, a, you've got an executive, they, and they should be acting according to their fiduciary duty and not according to ANC resolutions. I mean, <laughs> you know, I, mean, I mean, I think Warren has raised the issue about, about the mandate, whether this even fits into the mandate or not. So that's, 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 that's another issue as well. I mean, I think that there's a lot of issues yet to be unpacked, and a lot of people would be concerned you know, from, from the governance issue, and also from the sustainability issue. I mean. I mean, how many of these SOEs have uh, run down to the ground? And now we've got another one that's going to find like three and a half billion to give to a company that's potentially not even viable. I mean, it's okay. Hypothetically, we don't need to fix, our, fix our water system. <laughs> Hypothetically, Warren, yeah, if, if, if this is a bank whose mandate it is to fund infrastructure and it has bonds and bondholders. Right. Hypothetically, could this be a little bit worrying for some of the investors in the development bank bonds? Absolutely. And for, I mean, could we see any action from rating agencies, for example? Absolutely. I, I can't, uh, I don't know the quantum of the loan in relation to the development bank's uh, assets, so it's hard to ascertain from, from that point of view. But, but blatantly, it's, it's not within the mandate of the bank, as far as I'm concerned. And that's going to, at, at least in the short term, going to um, mean some very tough discussions with the bank's funders. The bank has had a checkered history itself. Went through a very rough patch, I think, uh, at the beginning of the last decade, and then um, uh, got itself right. And, and I think, uh, as I recall, it's been operating, um, but still takes, uh, still utilizes guarantees from the government. But I think it's just this conflation of the state and the, the ruling party, and this is what happens. I think after 25 years, this just doesn't seem to be whatever notional. There might be some notional separation between the ruling party and the state. But in real terms, uh, they're almost inter 
completely intertwined. And, and Genevieve, I mean, I'm just wondering, going back to SAA itself, it felt like we had some resolution that there was a recognition that this thing was not viable and needed radical restructuring. I mean, are we seeing a, almost a going back from there where we now no. in denial again about no, they still talk what needs about, to be done? They still talk about, and they talk about restructuring SOEs in general and looking at which ones need to be consolidated and rationalized and there's all this talk. And one thing that didn't come up in, this in, in, well, in the resolutions from this NEC was whether SA would still look at a equity partner that was but the ANC did say this last NEC that endorses um, bringing on an equity partner so of which I just want to add SAA had said um, December last year that it would take two to three years to get an equity partner on no uh, quick fixes here on mm. yes uh, I think we're all agreed fixes. there's no one is going to buy into SAA let's just take that off the table You'd rather start a new airline than, than take on SAA. The Ethiopians apparently were, were sniffing around. Look at that airline, $250 million profit. They're building the biggest airport in Africa. There's no chance. Warren, I'm going to move on to another story, which you've <laughs> actually been writing about now. The World Economic Forum a couple of days ago announces the following. Kristalina Georgieva, the Managing Director at the International Monetary Fund, and Patrice Motsepe, our very own founder and executive chairman of African Rainbow Minerals, will join the board of trustees of the World Economic Forum, coming in the wake of Davos. Um, now, Patrice Motsepe has today, yesterday, apologized for some kind of rather controversial statements he made in which he cozied up to Donald Trump at Davos. Warren, do you see any connection between these two and what might it be? Yes, absolutely. I mean, uh, Patrice is a legendary networker uh, and loves to name drop. Uh, if anyone has been to an ARM results presentation or a meeting with him, he'll talk about his tea with Bill Gates and Melinda Gates. He'll talk about his lunch with Warren Buffett, who is uh, one of his mentors. But clearly, um, uh, he was apologizing for the fact that he was saying he was speaking on behalf of all Africans, as he indicated to the president. But, uh, he said Africa loves you, Mr. Trump. Yes, to yes. That effect. and Africa but wants you to US succeed, etc., etc. And in the wake of some uh, very disparaging comments by President Trump last year in a closed-door session, uh, we used uh, a very memorable description of, of, of African countries. Uh, understandably, many Africans were very um, uh, angry that he had... Uh, that Mr. Motsepe had taken that liberty on, on speaking on their behalf and paying these glowing tributes to the U.S. president. But uh, my kind of take is that it, it was more tactical uh, and the man wants access to the institution of the White House as well as the sitting U.S. president who, who may well get a second term uh, for various reasons. Lucanio, you're back, just back from Davos yourself. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> what is your take on this one? Or in well, fact, on the way altogether? Uh, it's funny, like, actually, that, like, I was sitting with somebody still in Davos, and then, I mean, I didn't see them, and they, were, and they like, letted me to the, the whole Twitter storm about it. I actually thought it was a bit over the overreaction. I mean, I mean, when I read the statements in themselves, I didn't even read it to him as declaring personal love for Trump. It was like, you know, being 
diplomatic as well in saying, he was saying, you know, America is an important partner for, for Africa and South Africa. And when he actually said Africa loves you, I actually thought he meant South Africa loves the U.S. So I never actually read it in that way. Also, I was a bit surprised by the whole controversy and the need for apologies. <laughs> it just seems like a bit of a, what's the what's term, Dominic Teacup? <laughs> more, more on matters diplomatic yeah. and U.S. Genevieve, you're very excited about the appointment officially of the handbag ambassador <laughs> this week. Lana uh, Mark, uh, Trump's new ambassador to South Africa at last. Um, the president taking, I think it's called Letters of Credence. Um, what do you see? I mean, do you see a shift or any change in, in U.S. policy towards South Africa and Africa? Is, are things happening that we need to know about? Well, not that I know. I went to the first, she gave one briefing when she first arrived in South Africa and spoke about how much Mr. the President, she's told the President he must come to South Africa. We love America. We love South Africa. America loves South Africa. I love South Africa. And very fluffy in that. But nothing, nothing substantial, substantial at this. And we get global story again: a coronavirus in spreading through large swathes of China. Starbucks closing, two thousand of its Chinese shops. I read this morning. Um, British Airways cancelling its flights to direct flights to China. This is really becoming a massive global pandemic. And China has, in fact, opened the data to, to all in an attempt to try and find answers and potential solutions to this thing. A briefing by South African authorities this morning, Genevieve, what did they have to say? Um, from, I wasn't at the briefing myself, but from what I've picked up, um, the health minister, William Key, says um, there's nothing to worry about here in South Africa. They've put in, and um, he was joined by the Home Affairs Minister, Aaron Mutsaledi. They've put in extra measures at all ports of entry to South Africa. I guess just checking people are right. I don't know if you see when you walk at the airport, someone has the temperature. Mm. Um, apparently a case was picked up in Zambia, um, but it doesn't seem to have a widespread effect. And they seem pretty relaxed about... South Africa at this stage and what's happening and that it's, uh, you know, that we're pretty much contained. Do you think too relaxed? Oh, look, I know it's only having a huge, ne apart from the direct potential health effects, it certainly seems to be having quite an effect on global markets. No, definitely. I mean, I think maybe you could, I don't know whether you could argue and believe the panic is pro proportionate because somebody was saying, you know, if you look at how many people actually die on normal influenza every year here in the US, everywhere else, actually the numbers actually like, are way beyond bigger than anything we're seeing here. But then I suppose this is new. No, no, nobody knows what it is. And that, I think that is the main thing. So, the, so it's hard to assess how long the impact would be and how prolonged it will be. It's definitely had an impact on, 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 our, on our markets. It makes sense. I mean, China is the second biggest economy in the world. So, I mean, it's the biggest, like, um, one of the biggest, like, uh, like uh, consumers of commodities. I mean, like, uh, like millions of Chinese tourists travel everywhere. So you can imagine that the, 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 the impact on the economy globally, and, and, and that's been reflected in stocks and falling across the globe. And our assets have also taken a bit of a tumble on that. I mean, the rent actually hasn't been too bad in the, in the light of what you've seen, but it's still like near the weakest level since about 10th of December or so. So, but, but it's, but, but, it's by, but it's by no means the worst. It's in this middle of the range. I think it's, it's, it's like a global sort of risk-off mode that's taking in. Obviously, for we worry for us if it, if it continues and for how long it continues and what implications it might have. For the global economic outlook, does it potentially? But this is really But then, if like it's due because of the slowing global economy, then you could argue that 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 slowdown is also a bit disinflationary. So maybe it might not have an impact at all. Like 
as far as like, I mean, the Reserve Bank doesn't meet for a while anyway, so I think it's going to be a while before we have to worry about what they're going to say or think about Warren? it. I've just been amazed at how quickly China have reacted to this, and, and maybe this is one of the advantages of its governance system. I mean, they're building, they've built a hospital in five days. Ten, yeah, six. Five, six, seven days yeah. uh, since they announced it. They have sent every factory worker home in, in Wuhan, a city of nine million people. Uh, they, they, they seem, I must, I've been quite impressed with the way they've actually dealt with it. They've moved extremely quickly, so far as I can tell, and maybe there's, there's been some contrary news on that front, but I think uh, the Chinese it's, it's government did admit, though, that they took too long to, to give up, to actually act on it. They had the information before, but they came out and said they, well, maybe for them it seemed like too long. Mm. Actually, it's quite remarkable, given the numbers, that, uh, the numbers of deaths, not to under, underplay them, but the numbers mm. of deaths at the moment are in the hundreds, as mm. I understand it, and the number of infections, though spreading very, very fast, and obviously very contagious, are in the thousands. But given that... The reaction is huge. So I'm also very impressed. They do know something that we don't. Mm. To build a hospital, even in ten, I think it was mm. like between six and ten days. I was reading that um, the construction workers—they're basically working 24 hours, but taking shifts. But I guess in a country that doesn't really have the kind of labour laws we have, you can afford to have people working mm. 24 hours a day on a construction site. And they have a lot of experience building infrastructure. Mm. They yeah, do. Yeah, exactly. To the point of the governance, so it seems like when Be Beijing. Beijing decided what, what needed to be done and the edict came, everyone complies straight, mm -hmm. straight away, it looks like. Yeah. I just can't yeah. imagine yeah. us reacting yeah. this quickly if it, was yeah. Yeah. if it broke out yeah. someplace in Joburg or something like that. Yeah. I mean, it's just yes. phenomenal. And Look, I, I suppose they've learned as well from previous experiences, you know, with other stuff that you've had before, well, like with the other virus and also like SARS. You know, SARS and also a scandal with the milk. So like, mm. I think that they sort of learned it's better to be proactive in communicating mm. because when you don't communicate, then you just spread then more rumors just spread. Then just Maybe they, that's they, they, they a strong signal that's yeah. coming out of this, that mm. China's trying to show that it is serious and open to the world mm. when these things happen. But look, Kanye, I wanted to come to your favorite, one of your favorite topics, Brexit. Oh, <laughs> Friday is the day. This is it. The Never UK know. is out. Mm. It's funny, like, was, you know, when you're following the elections just before, like, I think one of the slogans was, let's get Brexit done. And I suppose in some, in some ways it does get Brexit done in a sense that Senate documents, but it actually, it's only actually the beginning. Who knows what is how, how it's going to end? Because now they, they, they start the hard work now where they're going to discuss their sort of like trade relationship and the relationship, the post Brexit relationship. I think they're going to find that a lot trickier because they're going to be dealing with bureaucrats on the other side. The so Europe. just just run us through it. So Friday is the day on which the UK is out of the European Union it's, after mm. however many years since the 70s. It's out now, it has no voice, it is mm. not part of the, the governing structure, but it is still subject to European Union rules. Exactly, yes. But in this year, and it's only given itself, as I understand it, uh, yeah, yeah. until December to, ne to negotiate new dispensations. So what do you think will happen at the end of this year? I mean, mm. As you say, so now there's, a, there's this transition period which ends in the end of the end of, end of the year and they actually have an option to extend it for about an, for another year or so but then boris johnson said no no i don't want that it'll option. be december it'll be, it'll be december we are to no matter what but then he said that last last week in last year in october and so it, what it happens happen. if there's no workable deal i mean if there's december. no deal then, 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 then you get the worst case scenario where they literally fall out of the eu and become a third country and no trade relation no, no, nothing to replace all is legal 
institutional relationship that they've had for like the last 40 years or so. I mean, can you just imagine Sunday like there'd be customs union between, I don't know, you know to, go to, to go to France or whatever. And can you imagine the backlog in terms of the impact on trade? To get Schengen visas you like know, we do. Yeah. Warren, <laughs> yeah, you know. Warren what, I mean, what's your bet on what happens at the end of the year? Because people do, have, do forget that this might be Brexit on Friday, but the, we don't know what it's going to look like at all yet. Exactly. I, I think my understanding, as Lakanya kind of alluded to, is you've, you had one overarching agreement that governed a whole range of laws between the two countries, including the trade relationships, and now those all have to be individually renegotiated. So, uh, I, I must be honest, I'm sympathetic to the, that motto, uh, let's get Brexit done. It's created so much uncertainty. So, coming down now to who's going to get the best side of the bargain but it needs to move i mean it's been it's been over three and a half years well, the uncertainty has been killing the, the british economy yeah. as far as I see. aren't you putting the cart before the horse because okay we sign it we're out but we still <laughs> don't already know did what that no. they already did that I mean, no, yes, multiple okay. times yes indeed I mean, they did that with the vote itself because I mean, then people just didn't know how complicated this thing is. I, I, I still get the impression that they still don't appreciate it. It feels terrible to me to watch a country trashing itself. Yeah. It was a really successful economy. I know it wasn't successful for everyone. And the irony is like, you know, the UK became very rich and very successful inside the European Union. When they joined in the 70s, they were the sick men of Europe. They and, were. And, 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 and by the Good time point. they voted to leave, they were actually on path to actually overtake Germany they were one as, of the as, fastest. as, as, they as, were the, as fastest the richest story. country in Europe. So they actually they came in sick and they were like very, getting very healthy to the point where they were going to overtake the Germans as, as a top economy in Africa, sorry in Africa, in Europe. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and then they decided this is the time they should, they, they, they should tell it all up. And <laughs> for Genevieve, you had a grammar issue. Yes, so I think the best story that came out this week about Brexit <laughs> in The Guardian was the call for a boycott of the commemoration coin, of the Brexit commemoration the coin, coin, because it doesn't have an Oxford comma. So it goes, peace, prosperity, and friendship for all nations. But there's no comma. Second comma. No second comma after prosperity and before and, which I think is the whole... Ox so I think there's a big debate of whether you use the Oxford comma or you don't, or whether it's needed or whether it's not, and is it needed in every circumstance, mm. which is the debate we had, actually. And this is everything <laughs> you love about Britain, yeah. isn't it? You know, <laughs> you know, everything can be reduced to something a bit lighter. <laughs> Genevieve, once again, coming back home, the public protector, um, Parliament now has the power or the methodology by which to remove her, and as I understand it, the process has been launched to try to remove her, and she is fighting back. Yes. On what grounds and what form is her fight being taken? Well, what, and will she win? She said yesterday, she held a briefing yesterday, and she said that she's been advised that the rules adopted by Parliament are unconstitutional and unlawful. But she doesn't go into much detail of what is unconstitutional and unlawful about it. The, the big thing she brings up is that she heard through the media that Tandi Modise, the Speaker of the National Assembly, has now given the okay for the process to go ahead. The process being the way it's starting is that everyone, all the political parties give um, recommendations to set up a panel to investigate whether there is any credence to this. She's saying, well, no one came to me. How could the Speaker start this process, she didn't inform me about it and I wasn't able to give my side of the story. But we're not in the, that part of the process yet. She will get her chance. So I don't, and, that, and that's her big grab. And she's now written to the speaker, and she's saying to the speaker, 
we need to deal, you need to deal with my issues, you must temporarily, temporarily um, suspend this process until you deal with my issues and let's do it amicably. And then everyone kept asking her, does that mean you, are you going to go to court about this? And then she just said, I've asked the speaker if we, I believe we can deal with it amicably. Um, and if not so, or if the speaker doesn't respond to me, my legal team will look at... Look, Anya, what chance that this will end in her removal? Yeah. And should we be removing her? I mean, uh, then if you, you might have to tell me, like, what, would, uh, I mean, what, are, what chances that ANC would vote to the opposition, <laughs> well, for example, when, 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 when it does come to that? Yeah, uh, I think yeah. the ANC is a bit splitted. We've heard some members of the Justice and Portfolio Committee of the ANC make comments, even when she appeared before them, you know, they made very strong comments and, and made comments about how come we are, it seems like we're having to fund incompetency because of all these court cases. So I think they're quite divided on that. In the end, it's going to have to go to Parliament. But this process is going to take so long that I think that the public protector might see her term out before the parliamentary process actually ends. Mm. And might do more damage uh, in the process. Yes. That is all we have time for. Thank you for joining us. Thank you to the audience for joining us. And please Join us again next week for the next edition of Editing Aloud.